Welcome back to Amala Tierra and we commence today's episode here on the lands of Tierra Iris, a farm that began with the purpose of regenerating soil by using syntropic farming, which is a method of agroforestry. It focuses on the natural ways of nature, letting her powers truly shine through instead of trying to control them. Tonight, Dr. Zach Bush of Farmer's Footprint is giving a talk and much of the farming community are going to be gathered here to listen. As an internationally recognised educator and thought leader on the microbiome as it relates to health, disease and food systems, it felt like the perfect way to start our September episode. Zach has been visiting farms on the island of Ibiza and meeting the regenerative agriculture community. Zach, thank you so much for agreeing to open today's episode. Uh, it's lovely to be with you and it's really wonderful to be on a farm. It's the right place to live life. <laughs> I mean, you've been here all week, and I just wonder, like, first up, what you've been witnessing on the land of Ibiza regarding our food systems. I mean, since you arrived, what kind of state would you say that they are in, if you had to make a quick assessment? Yeah, very similar to the rest of the world right now. Uh, so Ibiza has joined the rest of the world in really outsourcing food to distant lands. And so 94% of the food brought into Ibiza is imported and as of probably 50 years back, it was 100% self-sustainable in that food system. So uh, the advantage to the crisis of, of a non-resilient, non-local food system uh, here is is more amenable in that it's just a generation or two back that we have a memory of, of how that looked to have a completely resilient and local food system that could supply you know all of the local needs here. Yeah, the advantage here, of course, is, is size. So with 150,000 full-time residents, you're not talking about a massive amount of land production to, to make that fully fed. And so it's exciting to imagine what that would look like, which is uh, realizing that historically the amount of diversity that was farmed here isn't matching the modern diet, and the modern diet is demanding a lot more diversity. And so that's an opportunity to bring more diversity to the agricultural system that's been here. And you mentioned uh, this entropy model of agroforestry, and we're seeing great examples of that start to sprout up around the island just in the last two or three years. So uh, I've been impressed with how fast the projects are are emerging and that they are emerging in partnership, there seems to be a lot of collaboration and a lot of effort towards sharing information and sharing success as, as this movement gets going here on Ibiza. Yeah, I think there's a, a very real kind of, you know, state of evolution that's kind of ramping up um, massively. And yesterday, after the talk at Sabina Estates, he said something similar to Daniel Christian Wall, who we had on episode two, and that's that people in Ibiza have, you know, as you just rightly pointed out, been feeding the population here for hundreds of years up until quite recently. So this narrative of only 4% of the food being consumed here being from here is something of a recent phenomenon. Why do you think there's been such a rapid decline and, and what is the solution? In a nutshell, it's a loss of a generation or two of of knowledge or remembrance of what the land provided. And so this island remembers its history back 2,500 years, but it undoubtedly goes far beyond that. And so the, this area of Mesopotamia and the greater Mediterranean and all of this, so this area has been populated probably for a couple hundred thousand years by humans. And so this land has provided an abundance so that it would survive many different changes. Uh, the end of the last ice age was just 10,000 years ago. And so uh, when you start looking back into recent history, you realize, wow, sea levels must have radically changed. Weather definitely radically changed. Warming happened. Uh, and people stayed. And they were able to adapt. And so that adaptation was easy and, and made, well, perhaps challenging at its moments, but it was made very survivable for the relationship to the land. And the divorce from the land happened through a bit of an addiction or a, a sudden belief that technology was going to be the future uh, rather than the nature. And so technological solutions to make convenience and ease and wealth more accessible came in strong after World War II. And so as Europe rebuilt, uh, the West began to thrive in a whole new level of economic you know, exploitation through colonialism in a whole new way where it was no longer sailing ships around the world to, to take property. It was really taking the, the riches of those distant lands in the forms of commodities. And so whether it be minerals, trace minerals, precious metals, 
or the food itself uh, done through cheaper labor and all that. And so a new form of colonialism cropped up after World War II and that exploitation of food systems and beyond meant that there was a no longer demand on many of the European or other Western you know, lands and uh, to be a farmer, it was cheaper to get that, that produce from, from further afield. So that was the beginning of it, and you know, as education systems adapted to that demand for non-agricultural, non-food-based you know, occupations, and as the tourist you know, reality started to set in as, as air travel became you know, a, a daily and accessible thing to the middle class in the 1950s and 60s, it changed the, the shape of much of the world and beautiful places that had been protected through their remoteness, such as Ibiza, uh, were suddenly accessible to the world. And so it was that kind of perfect storm of technology is our solution kids don't want to go farming they want to go into technology instead and this sudden capacity for you know new new economic drive through tourism and outsourcing those food systems to cheaper labor all of those had pressures to create this phenomenon not just in Ibiza but pretty much any modern city and I wouldn't leave it to the west either you've seen the same kind of collapse of systems in, in China and things like that India is undergoing a massive you know, risk of, of losing their, their peasant farmer base that's been there for hundreds of thousands of years as well. So uh, we're really at that cusp of seeing the industrialized world at large losing this, this food sovereignty, this food sustainability, this food security. And, and for that, we're seeing deep vulnerability. I mean, I think Spain has actually banned quite a lot of um, different cities in you know Madrid for example from using glyphosate and actually you know there's obviously changes coming and and obviously I think Ibiza will not be far behind or the Balearic um, government will hopefully catch on and that will evolve here as well as we're seeing this regenerative um, revolution really on Ibiza and I just wonder you know after generation well not generations but toxicity in the soil and obviously in the water systems like how how is that healed i think it's healed through a a reconnection of relationship of humans to our land and remembering reverence for it and trusting it remembering that it has abundance for us and and we don't need to be in a scarcity model towards uh, the natural resources that are here instead we need to understand how nature does abundance even in settings where where resources seem to be scarce uh, the island has limited water resources, for example, and so how has nature kept humans here? It has methods, but they've been forgotten or they've been unrecognized. And so diving back into those simple things of how did nature take a scarce commodity like water and make it so sustainable and, and, and ultimately abundant. And so that's so that healing of relationship and that healing of the mindset is really the only piece of the puzzle that's needed. Nature then takes care of everything else. And you're watching examples of that here at this farm, but also uh, just came over from Terra Viva. And what I'm blown away with is not only the success they've had in a single year of, you know, this is only their second summer crop that's now completing itself. And it is one of the most successful, most verdant, most biodiverse, most literally beautiful end of summer gardens I've ever seen. And they achieved that from dead forest to to absolutely thriving, you know, garden systems in a year. On top of that, similar to the optimism you just shared that Ibiza is not far behind some of this revolution, Terra Viva just won a huge EU-wide grant to become the training center for regenerative farmers throughout the EU. And so that this tiny little island is going to step up to become the cert- not only the educator, but the certifying body for regenerative farmers throughout the EU is pretty spectacular that that happened here. And uh, I couldn't be more thrilled to find out the success that they, they just found out in the recent weeks that this is happening. And it's going to go like wildfire because farmers are have their back against the wall due to collapsing economic factors around conventional chemical farming that, that is now making it n- nearly impossible to subsist in that space. And so what seemed like a boon, chemical agriculture to reduce labor through spraying and overplowing, things like that, has become the injury that needs repair. And the repair is reconnecting humans to the earth and inviting back these younger generations that are actually wanting to get out of tourism, wanting to not work in hotels all the time and want to be back in the land. And so there's this lovely 
generational effect that's now kind of reversing itself. We probably lost two generations to the pursuit of uh, convenient money, convenient jobs, you know, jobs that were less physically strenuous. For that, we became more obese, more sedentary, more dysfunctional as a society. And now this next generation is like, you killed the land. And I'm looking at my parents' grandparents saying, I don't want that health journey. And so kids are digging back into where we're at. And and when I say kids, we're looking at a lot of 20 and 30 year olds who are really starting to look at what it what it would look like for me, not knowing how to farm. None of my ancestors that I have met remember farming, but I want to do it. And they're getting in. They're jumping in all over the world. And so that's that's a trend that should allow us to sleep a lot easier at night. As this is coming through the hearts of young people. I mean, you say that 0.01% of um, Americans grow their own food and obviously have any kind of real connection to it or knowledge about where it comes from. And I, you spoke yesterday also about the disconnection, I think, of, of humans to nature and, and the way that's kind of influenced the way that we experience it and the way that we view it. And I would love to hear maybe just a little bit more about that disconnection and how you kind of feel about it. Yeah, it's a it's a deep wound, and it goes back to the very oldest stories that we've told ourselves. All of our religious stories speak to this, you know, event in past where we were kind of saw ourselves divorced from the garden, and then we would be forced out of the garden and and sent to toil in the fields and and try to fight out, you know, some sort of subsistence living in in the farming and agricultural thing. For, and for thousands of years, we did that. And it's interesting as you start to watch Centropy and, and these agroforestry projects start to take a hold, you realize the Garden of Eden was a description of an agroforest, basically. And if we go deeper in history than our current, you know, biblical or other religious texts can go, all of these are dating back at most kind of 5,000, 6,000 years. If we go back a little bit further, we start to realize there was there was a momentum here on the planet towards you know technologies that were in line with nature that allowed great revolutions in in human you know survival movement transformation all this to happen and so there's a remembrance that's going to come back through to us that this is not new and nor is it even new to our recent history. It's something that's existed probably many times over the 300,000 years of of the human experiment. So uh, a beautiful time of remembrance, reconnection. Uh, We, it's such a a non-human journey in the sense that if we're not gonna go save the planet, which is what all the bumper stickers used to say, and we find out that the planet is really trying to save humanity in its last throes of survival, that just reverses the table so thoroughly that it helps us ask different questions and and come to much different conclusions and answers for our children and grandchildren to start to set into motion a new humanity in which our, everything from our mindset to our genetics realign with, literally realign with nature at this deep, deep level of possibility. And she has always thrived after extinction. And so thank goodness we've brought this planet back to the its knees on extinction because it means it's going to do something ridiculously creative again. And it's going to get really good. And I believe that if we play our cards right as humanity, if we heal our relationship with our Earth quick enough, we get to stay and play in that new genomics of the planet and that new biodiversity, that new species opportunity. And, and we could see a radical shift in what kind of flora, fauna, you know, large and small plant life, microbiome, what sort of animals thrive on this planet over the next you know, few thousand years could really change radically, which would be very fascinating. I mean, I was really shocked to hear you saying about, you know, one in two Americans is going to have cancer in their lives at, at some point in the game. And I feel like that is a very shocking statistic. And I, I really didn't know that. And I, I gather that that's kind of part of your plan to work with farmers footprint to regenerate, you know, that entire storyline in, 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 in America. That's how I got to Farmer's Footprint for sure. My background was in allopathic Western medicine. Um, I got into medicine through a pretty holistic path. I went to the Philippines and was birthing babies in a midwifery clinic, international midwives over there. And so that was my first exposure to the medical world. Wasn't very passionate about school at the time, mostly out building houses, renovating old American cars. That kind of thing was my, my teen years. 
and thought I was going to go into engineering for all the kind of hands-on experience I'd had. And that, and that seeing a f- few of those first babies born into my hands really changed everything. And it, and it took me on a different path into medicine, which ended me in a much different place of developing chemotherapy. And what I learned in the chemotherapy path was that I was I was chasing the wind of this cancer epidemic that was occurring. We had had an 84% increase in cancer since the 1960s to my generation of doctors. And uh, we had reached that 50% of males with cancer, and at the time it was one in three women, but the women are now kind of superseding that one in three now. And so we're at one in two you know, peoples with cancer in the face of the most extraordinarily expensive and most extraordinarily heavy-fought scientific efforts to innovate drugs that we thought were going to save the world, perhaps, or we thought were going to heal disease. And so it was with the debut or paralleling the debut of pharmacology as our go-to, we created the deepest you know, wounds in humanity that would drive these massive chronic disease epidemics to where they are today. And it's unfortunate that you know cancer is not the only thing hitting those kinds of numbers. Major depression and anxiety disorders are now 50% of Americans in in the incidence, and so a really terrifying reality that most Americans right now, especially if you include children under the age of 18, are on some sort of antidepressant, anti-anxiety, sleep med, something essentially acting to change their brain, to palliate a disordered brain that is not thriving in its current environment. Similar numbers, one in four kids or so with asthma and allergies. Uh, they can't tolerate the food on, in, on the planet. They can't tolerate the air on the planet without these allergic reactions. So it's no longer safe for them to be on this planet. And so that's where we've gotten to in America. And that's you know, the whole Western world quickly following suit if, if this way of practice of not just pharmaceutical growing of farms, but pharmaceutical management of disease, if we continue to, to keep an iron grip on that's the only thing you can do, we lead ourselves into extinction. And, and that's what brought me to Farmer's Footprint, ultimately, was we, as we were filming these stories, my laboratory had uncovered some of the relationship between herbicides and pesticides and cancer. And so we were out to tell that story and then got really deeply introduced to the farming world up in, in you know, northern U.S., Minnesota, uh, was where we began the documentary. And then we shot all the way down to Louisiana, so over a 2,000-mile you know, expanse of, of our country, really the core of the country we, we visited. And I was horrified by so many different things. The state of the soils, I had no idea how devastated our infrastructure is as, as a soil has turned to dirt for so long and so that crisis is there layered on top of that crisis is the that loss of secession for the farms the average american farmer is now 70 years old and so there's no there's nobody waiting to take the farm over so we're now losing 6,000 8,000 family farms annually in the united states due to a lack of secession or bankruptcy and that crisis was really deeply felt on that trip and so it inspired not just the film but an entire nonprofit and education awareness campaigns to kick off and now we're working on innovation policy all kinds of other levels to see if we can really change the entire ecosystem around farmers so they can make the leap back to these more holistic models be it agroforestry or syntropy or biodynamic farming or simply just less bad farming would be a good start um, so that's that's where we're we've be- become aware of the the opportunity, and it's been fun to see a very small team step into the space and so quickly get global attention. Uh, it suggested that there was something in the air, there was something in the zeitgeist that was already knew that this was our pathway forward. It just needed the vision to be shown to it, and and I think that's how I feel about all areas of humans now. If we look at information technology, social media being an example of it, uh, but information technology to transportation, to energy systems, to the education system at large, to the healthcare system, everybody in the world is now recognizing, wow, that these systems simply are failing us. They they went to their most extreme expense and innovation and everything else, and it is they've not been the solution. In fact, they've been the harbinger of, of our demise. And so that's a daunting journey in some ways. It's something that's a difficult one to tell. 
from a science standpoint, and it's easier to understand from a human standpoint, I think. And so we're just releasing a book right now called Ordinary Soil. And it's a, a novel that, you know, takes takes the whole picture from a family farm in, in the U.S. And you get to meet these multi-generational farm families and the, and the crises they face on a daily basis. And I think it just really helps. The reader will have a much deeper understanding of why is this regen thing important. Because we have a tendency at the beginning of these revolutions to think, well, we need just soil management, we need biodiversity of soil, which is certainly where I started. And in the end, you realize you got to look through many different lenses before you find out what a regenerative environment and ecosystem looks like. And, you know, we've got a lot of great farms that we've talked about here in Ibiza today, but I was reminding one of these groups yesterday, like, you guys are coming up with a very aggressive model to try to make this thing stay in the black, which is exciting. But isn't it amazing to, to drive around this island and look at the old fincas, look at these old setups that were there. First, they were small. They didn't require lots of land because the farmer didn't expect that this was going to be their only revenue stream. And then there's a fishing hut on it. And then there's you know a little f- farmhouse against the road which or a little uh, shack against the road, which was the produce stand. And so they had diversified and verticalized economies at the level of the family throughout thousands of years every family farmed every family fished something and it wasn't their full-time thing it took a couple hours a week and they did their thing and it was not painstaking and difficult it was much more of that kind of garden of eden thing where there was always enough there was never a lack and you can find this when you go down to the amazon rainforest which is the largest human established agroforest project in history the most successful as well and that massive agroforest is so full of of multi-species food every step you take you're eating if you choose and so that is something that you can see in Ibiza. It's something that you can see in the headwaters of the Amazon. People have long been sustained by their nature and, and deeply trust it, and therefore they don't need much because they're not trying to store up for two generations down the road and make sure you have the multi-million dollar house and the big pension fund for the company or the big inheritance for the kids. That model is one of scarcity. That's actually planting the seed of fear that there's not enough into those kids that will receive those those big funds in the future and so it's the people who i have found to to be the richest in the world are those that that have realized wealth is a constant state of receiving rather than a constant need for doing and that's pretty much what we did in western culture we ejected from don't need much because nature provides every day to this belief of there's never enough no matter how much we make no matter how much we exploit no matter how much we do so we must do more we must always do more every generation has to do more to keep the ball growing bigger and bigger and bigger and in a sense it's what's now in the financial world called the ponzi scheme where the whole thing has never been a good financially sound model you can't extract resources from your planet that you live on and expect to be able to not not return those to her and to continue to have a one-way street into waste streams that rather than re-nourishing the soil turn into poisons microplastics herbicides you know the whole thing the system is just inherently a ponzi scheme each generation has been paying more money in to prevent the the appearance that it doesn't work you know and so we keep that blind trust of well, maybe it'll work next time if we get better technology or better seeds or, you know, all this stuff. And uh, So it's, it's a humbling thing to think that here we have some of the most educated people on the planet. And we could talk about whether intelligence is equated to education. I would say not. But the, that education piece, you got this brilliant academia worldwide saying the world is coming to an end. And technology is the only solution out of this thing. And so there's just that deep of a lack of trust in nature in academic calls that there's an obvious healing path here. But inside of each person that has the the opportunity to go into silence and really listen in will realize that, wow, there's an abundance in me. I forget about my food and everything else. There's literally an abundance of life within me that has come forward to present myself as a human right now. 
And that's the abundance we all needed to tap into is I showed up on purpose and I know who I am. And I'm really curious to know what my creativity is going to drive me to tomorrow. And that's that's the imbued spirit that really becomes a regenerative future that we all kind of have a sense now. Maybe this is going to become the real thing. Maybe this is what gets us out of the extinction. It's that little tickle inside of you that's just like, Phew, that this feels right. This feels good. Why do I feel good? I've been told it's the end of all things. I've been told that, you know, climate crisis is going to destroy everything and we'll all be underwater. You've been told so many things. But do you feel that inside that it's hopeless or do you feel when you start to listen and stand on farms and all the rest that the future's already here and it's just it's something we've not taken the time to observe or realize is that regenerative food systems are already known, have long been practiced, are ready to be you know, reinvented in many ways so that it fits modern culture, modern societies and economic systems. I mean, last question, because I know you have to go, but what, you know, do you think that witnessing so much death in your career has made you want to preserve life in this way with the food systems and the security and the kind of regenerative angle that you're taking? Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it, because ultimately when we start to think about, you know, this concept of abundance versus scarcity, the one thing that we all tend to share as humans is the belief that life is scarce. And so we live life as if it's scarce, and so we fear death. And in fearing death, we we lose the ability to live, and we actually live a, a long demise towards the, towards death, in which we are clinging to something, uh, trying to avoid something that is inevitable, which is really a rebirth. And so, when you stop fearing death, suddenly you live completely differently. You live so much more vibrantly, and depression becomes something, anxiety becomes something of the past because. You, you no longer fear the very fundamental thing of is there enough life and you trust that today I've been given that next breath and there, that, that that's enough life now. And so I have exactly the amount of life in me that I'm designed to do that my higher self stepped into knowing the path problem. My, if I have a soul that animates me into the thing that can die and then have a near-death experience outside the body and then come back to the body, which I saw all the time, if that's if that thing is is eternal it must not have a space-time continuum like my three-dimensional brain does and so it would have known the journey before it stepped in and so wouldn't it know that the journey was enough wouldn't my highest self wouldn't my deepest divine state of myself know that i can live to the fullest every day because the moment i let go of this life is the moment i'm birthing back into my next mission my next expression of myself and the rest so Absolutely. The more you see death, the less you fear it. The less you fear death, the more you live. That's a very neat way to end today's <laughs> first episode recording. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate your time. I'm thrilled to be here with you. Thank you. Our next guest came all the way to Ibiza from Vitoria in the Basque country to give a training on hydrological design in Keyline. Now, on an island that is in a condition of over-exploitation of water and high vulnerability due to contamination of aquifers, and after a very dry start to the year, we're meeting David Gonzalez to find out what we can do to improve the situation. And once again, we're back at Juntos Farm for the conversation, as David has been giving local farmers a three-day course. David, welcome to Amala Tierra. Muchas gracias. Thank you very much. So, David, let's just start off with the fact that you've been sharing um, this course uh, here at Huntos Farm. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been what you've been um, educating the local um, community on? Pues como decías en la introducción, el agua es un. Well, as you said in the introduction, uh, water is a very important factor within this island, right? An island that is making a commitment in many cases to be a beacon for the regeneration of land and soil worldwide. So if we want to be a reference in soil regeneration, if we don't have the fundamental resource to do this, uh, which is water, then we'll hardly be able to achieve this entire regeneration process. And these days, I've been able to write a little bit about uh, the situation of this island in terms of difficulties uh, it's going through. 
not only because of the drought, but also because of the levels of overexploitation that is being done to the water that we have at the level of the aquifers within the island. So one of the strategies that are precisely uh, intended uh, through these techniques that we are explaining in uh, this course is to try to recharge and recover the water levels that the aquifers of the island itself have. So what can we do about this situation of drought that we're at, you know, that we're in in the Balearics? La respuesta está en el suelo. The answer is in the ground. We have to work the proper way on the ground. If we work properly, what we achieve is that plants are capable of taking that excess CO2 that we have in the atmosphere and that is causing uh, the problems of climate change. Then plants are capable of capturing this CO2 and with all the microbiology that is within the soil, size it and introduce it into the soil. So when this process happens, uh, we manage to transform the soil into a sponge that has much more water retention capacity. And these are things that are achieved uh, through regenerative agriculture practices. Look, there is an important fact that tells us that for every 1% increase of organic matter content of a soil, the soil is capable of retaining up to 160,000 liters of extra water per hectare per year. So that is a very large amount. If the soils of this land, uh, which are currently in a state of degeneration, are quite degraded uh, as a consequence of conventional agriculture uh, practices uh, that do a lot of damage uh, to the land, and we move on to uh, regenerative practices in which we manage to increase the organic matter content uh, of soils, when it rains, the soil will have the capacity to store a lot of extra water, which will make it much more resilient in the face of drought conditions that may come in the future. And it is also a way to have greater resilience in the face of the sudden changes that climate change predicts. And of course, if we are saying that we can size the excess CO2, that we have in the atmosphere, in the soil, in the form of carbon, which in one hand will increase fertility, but on the other hand, it will also increase the matter content. Thus, organic and water size capacity. This will make the island much more resilient, that is, it will make much more capacity to withstand all these problems. So I had a conversation with Daniel Christian Wall. He's an author of Designing Regenerative Cultures uh, this week. And he says that much of the water that we need falls out at the sea um, due to the humidity. And I wonder if there's any way that, you know, we can kind of bring that back onto the land. Maybe that is one solution. Este es uno de los aspectos más importantes del diseño hidrológico en línea clave en Keyline. This is one of the most important aspects of hydrological design in Keyline. Normally what usually happens when heavy rain falls, like the other one uh, that we had that uh, the last past weekend, um, the water goes directly into the sea. Therefore, the strategy proposed by the Keyline hydrological design is to establish a design on a landscape scale that allows establishing a series of channels and ponds built on the land itself. They slow down the flow of water on the surface in such a way that we give time for the water to infiltrate into the soil, both through the channels and through the ponds and through these water storage areas. So in this way, the water infiltrates into the soil and recharges the water phreatic levels. Um, and this way, all these water reserves uh, can be recharged and can be used uh, other times. 
Currently, uh, in the consumption model that we have, uh, there are a lot of uh, drillings and uh, wells on the island, and what they are doing is extracting the water that is within the aquifers. Of course, if we extract uh, and do not replenish, then there will come a point like the one we are currently in, in which our aquifers are being emptied. But this technique, uh, what we can do is infiltrate all that rainwater and recharge the water phreatic levels. In recent years, a new theory is coming into play, which is known by the name of the theory of the biotic pump. Which uh, really tells us is that uh, when we have a forest with an adequate state of maturity, that is, a forest uh, with different strata, we do not have a monoculture, but we have a forest uh, pulling more to deciduous. Trees have the capacity through evapotranspiration that occurs in the leaves to release small particles that are known as uh, vox. These vox are volatile organic particles that plants are capable of expelling in evapotranspiration, which in turn uh, act as condensation nuclei for water droplets in the atmosphere. On a macro scale, at the planet level, it allows a condensation uh, that in some way also facilitates precipitation in certain areas. So talk to us about the micro watershed scale planning and how that works in Keyline. This works. Uh, to understand this system, we have to think on a territorial scale, on a hydrological basin scale. A hydrological basin uh, will be an area through which water is flowing. And here, what we have to try to design is a system that allow us to, as mentioned before, to slow down the flow of waters that move in runoff on the island. We can see in a lot of places, if we look closely, for example, at the dirt roads that are built with a slope, we can see how the water gets stuck there and causes gullies and marks or areas of erosion. So with the hydrological design from Keyline, what we do is to slow down the water speed so that it does not cause erosion problems and leads it to points where we can store it in the form of ponds and from there we can use it for specific irrigation or to infiltrate it into the aquifers so we can recharge them as we were marking before. And this not only has effects at the level of our water use, of course. Having different ponds established in a certain area, it also serves to attract or increase biodiversity in those areas. This allows the birds to have places to drink, uh, for there to be insects, uh, for the birds to eat those uh, insects, and for example, it creates areas where we can have horticultural production such as in this farm. And this is uh, very interesting because uh, there is going to be biological control and there is going to be a balance within the species that are going to live within an entire system as a farm. So those points are very interesting. And then we also have to take into account that in the conditions in which we find uh, ourselves, because of the risk of fires is also increasing, having different sheets of water throughout the territory will be nice. And it's also going to help in case of a problem, as we can control those fire problems in a much safer way. You say that water and soil can be harvested. What does that look like? Bueno, nosotros con esta técnica lo que hacemos es construir una serie de estanques que están construidos en tierra y lo que buscamos. With this technique, what we do is build a series of ponds that are built on land, and what we are looking for is a condition of semi-impermeability in such a way that we can have water during many times of the year. 
but that water is also infiltrating the aquifers. The idea is to recharge the aquifers so that uh, there comes a time when the water can remain much longer in those ponds. And then also, if we do it with an appropriate technique, we can achieve certain levels of waterproofing within that soil. That will allow me to have water for a much longer period of time and be able to use that water, for example, to make small irrigation or to improve the humidity conditions of a certain area. Are you aware of the area on Ibiza called Cesfacius? Um, it's an area of wetland on the northern side of Ibiza that runs around Ibiza Bay towards um, Talamanca. I've, I've seen some of the... Um, text on your website talking about facious and the obviously the valuable um properties that they obviously uh, mm -hmm. embellish with the with the land and i just wonder you know what is that what in your mind are kind of like the purpose of those claro realmente todas estas técnicas no son cosas nuevas of course really all these techniques are not new things Fortunately, on this island, uh, there are still many elements of our traditional culture of using water in a very sustainable way. That is to say, many cultures have passed through this island in the last 2,000 years, and these cultures had uh, very important management of water within their own territory. Because, of course, uh, water was something absolutely fundamental as a resource to be able to live in an island where the weather conditions are often quite complicated. So uh, all these cultures uh, developed a series of very sophisticated systems with very simple elements, but uh, that they were able to manage very well and read what was happening in a landscape and how to make very efficient use of all this water to regenerate some areas. Well, what has come to us through literature is areas that had to be authentic orchards, authentic paradises, in which very efficient uh, water management was carried out, and that allowed us to have very rich and very interesting areas to cultivate. This is, for example, the case of faces, right? How they were able to articulate a series of uh, terraces in which they cultivated through a series of channels, taking advantage of all the flow of different streams that fell through one basin, and in this way establishing a system of horticultural production, and even introduction of super interesting livestock to produce all this food that was needed locally. So I think it is also important that in some way we recover all this traditional heritage that we have on the island. I think we also have to recover all the culture about sustainability uh, that comes to us from behind. Now we are not really inventing many new things, and if we look back, we will be able to learn many things about how to manage water in an appropriate and sustainable way. I think it's really important to, you know, to address the cetaceous um, and their, ho you know, the way that they play host to so many migratory birds and support a great variety of flora and fauna, including bats and reptiles and 140 species of birds. And I feel like, you know, the Moors brought them to Ibiza and they were hugely wise in terms of the ways um, that they made it possible to turn any parched land into, you know, usable, fertile agricultural land. And they implemented, as you just said, you know, a really complicated network of cisterns, reservoirs, water wheels, and irrigation canals, they also use this scheme to move vast amounts of water away. So I, so I wonder, you know, obviously this is what you've been sharing on the course, but how do we really slow down um, the rate at which surface water flows? Yo creo que it is a great opportunity to recover all this ancestral heritage and above all to understand how in some way these cultures of the past were making very responsible use of water and from that uh, generate some very rich places in terms of the production of food. 
I believe that it is an area in which we should do research and really understand the complexity of the system that uh, they were able to develop in this entire area and that the learning that we can draw from the restoration of this entire important ecosystem could be useful to us. Well, to be able to develop in other different areas of the island and to be able to replicate it, to try to regenerate all these types of systems, I believe that the island also needs this type of system to recharge the aquifers, which uh, based on this consumption model uh, that we have, we have to extract. And that could cause Ibiza to face uh, serious water uh, use problems in a short time. I mean, as a result of that then, how do we increase the organic matter content? Pues para incrementar el contenido de materia orgánica de los suelos podemos utilizar pues muchas de las herramientas que nos están aportando en las últimas décadas. To increase the organic matter content of soils, we can use many of the tools that have been provided to us in recent decades. Movements as interesting as agroecology or regenerative agriculture. Regenerative agriculture focuses on the development of a lot of techniques that, are, that precisely have a direct and positive impact on the increase in soil organic matter. So, for example, when we are talking about hydrological design in key line, it is one of the main tools that we can use because this is, uh, it will allow us to have a greater amount of water within the soil. And this will allow the microorganisms that live within the soil to thrive and thus size the carbon that we have in the atmosphere more efficiently. But we can also use many other tools, such as, for example, the reintroduction of livestock farming. Livestock farming has a fundamental job because there are many studies throughout the planet that tells us that when we use livestock farming with criteria, such as those taught to us by regenerative livestock farming or holistic management, rational sheep herding, and so on, because livestock farming can uh, generate a very positive impact on the soil, increasing the organic matter content within the soil very quickly. So I believe that uh, this alliance between agriculture and livestock to reintroduce animals into regenerative projects is something absolutely fundamental. And I believe that in addition on this island, we find many forest masses that on many occasions are not having the necessary care. And there we can see that in some places there is a fairly large excess of biomass. And the introduction of livestock farming within the forest that can clear those forests since on the one hand they will allow us to size more carbon within the soil and on the other hand uh, it also reduces the risk of fires since it is uh, more present on the island every day. Answer number 10. Well, this is a very interesting process that is complex to explain but it is basically about understanding how a soil works. As I mentioned before, plants through photosynthesis are capable of taking that CO2 that is in the atmosphere and that is causing us uh, so much harm. Plants through photosynthesis are capable of transforming this CO2 into simple sugars. These simple sugars, on one hand, uh, can become more complex but there is a part of these sugars that the plant creates through photosynthesis uh, that uh, they are able to exude through the roots, that is to release through the roots. And why do plants do that? Uh, okay. Well, uh, because in nature, one of the basic elements of nature's uh, functioning is to understand the process of symbiosis, of mutual support that occurs between plants and the microbiology that are within the soil. 
It is a very interesting uh, phenomenon because the microorganisms that are inside the soil need the sugars that the plant is capable of producing and pumping through the roots. And in this process of symbiosis, in exchange, the microorganisms are able to solubilize nutrients and give them to the plant so that the plant can grow and prosper in a symbiosis process that is very interesting. So what is going on with all this? Well, if we maintain the soil in certain conditions and uh, do not, for example, produce a negative disturbance in it, for example, by turning the soil, not using the plow, um, can continue to function within the small structures that we saw before. When the soil is there, it has organic matter and is functioning as if it were a sponge. Microbiology can function there and part of the detritus uh, that is formed when all that microbiology dies is stored in the form of carbon, which is what allows these structures to be generated within the soil and store all that water that we can retain through of rain. It is a very complex process, but it is also very interesting to understand how this process of carbon storage and transformation works. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. I know you've been working hard teaching, so we'll let you go. But thank you so much for joining us here on Amala Tierra. Muchísimas gracias. Un placer. Thank you very much. A pleasure. So we are here at the Juntos Farm Day opening, um, a day that I think a lot of people on the island have been waiting for and today feels like a massive celebration for the community to really allow ourselves to come to a place together and eat incredible food that's been locally produced in a way that really nourishes and nurtures the land regeneratively. Um, so it's super exciting to be here. There's lots of workshops with um, different people from across the island doing different projects. Um, and I'm very excited to end today's podcast with Erica, who is running a zero waste workshop with the Beat the Produce. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, yeah for asking me that. I'm always very happy to share my experience and to share my passion. So thank you. And it's an absolute pleasure. I mean, I saw your events at um, Terra Viva just the other week, and I saw you speaking at um, Tierra Iris on Thursday night um, after the Zach Bush talk, which is what we opened today's podcast with, with an interview. Um, so it feels fitting to sort of end with this interview today. Tell us first up, like, you know, what does it mean to you to have Huntos kind of opening this enormous space uh, and place that has the possibility perhaps to really change this narrative that the island, you know, has so little food that's actually grown here being consumed here yeah from my perspective in the la I'm living on this island in the last 10 years so I can say I can say that we are producing a lot actually there are so many producers that are, we have a lot of abundance the point that we have to learn how to use this abundance we actually produce overproduce if I have to be honest so uh, the point is for me now to bridge the community to the food that, that get produced because we are not still using it and a lot of people that are living on this island are not still uses use what we produce organically but they are still going to supermarket to other sources that are not from the island so and uh, I work with uh, many of uh, the producer of this island so uh, Rocco Terra, Terra, um, Terra de Biza so there are many that are already working since 10 years and now Juntos is um, I'm observing them I'm seeing I love to see and collaborate but for now it's uh, it's it's all to see what is going to be and they have a lot of potential let's see how this will evolve the point is to create a community space where we listen to each other so it's not uh, create a unique space that absorb everything but it's to keep the different body the different cell the different organs work harmonically but make this organ in connection and in communication so this is the very important job that we have to do so Punto is another producer right now, they will have a huge laboratory to work the produce, so I'm observing how this will evolve. 
but I can say the island is full of food. That's why it's zero waste start, because we literally don't know how to uh, use our food. Since the invention of the fridge, our health starts to go down, because the fridge is the beginning of the end. We uh, start to create the concept of waste, but nature doesn't have waste, as only transformation, and that's what I'm teaching. Transform, don't exclude, include, and this is the key for a happy, healthier, abundant life. I mean, you're, we're sitting here surrounded by these beautiful watermelons that you're working with today. I gather you were working with tomato sauce um, in the last workshops that you were making at Terra Viva, which is obviously a beautiful recipe that I know that used to be a secret and now it's not from your grandmother. Um, but, you know, what are you doing with the watermelons today? What's the idea behind? What are you trying to rescue or, or save from happening? So what I bring here for uh, the people is actually to learn how to ferment. So how to take, for example, a watermelon that is almost unusable, you cannot eat it because it's too sugary, that's the perfect moment in which you want to start a fermentation. That means an alchemical transformation of all the sugar in something that is an amino acid, actually something that is very useful for your body to keep your health, to keep your uh, pH in the right balance and to add new probiotics, so new bacteria to your belly. So here today we will see how to use the pulp of a, a watermelon that is a little bit too ripe to be eaten because uh, it's too sugary and transform it in a vinegar or if you use it a little bit before even in a sparkling wine uh, and then all the zest so all the ripe the external part we will do a pickle with that so I'm literally teaching how to use it all and uh, as you can see behind me I also use it to make a sort of a meat this one that I'm showing to you I would love for people to be able this one was a six kilo watermelon that had get, get transformed in a pure meat this once you cook it uh, tastes like uh, uh, lamb it's incredible what do you think that the world would look like if everybody took a few of these tips on board and actually worked in this way in their kitchens? Yeah, it's, it's a beginning. It's a slow transformation. That's why my aim right now is literally to bridge people uh, into the farming life because it's not about producing. A lot of people have uh, food at home and they don't know how to use it. They don't know how to see the potential behind that. One of the secrets, one of the rules that I have, I don't work with recipe. I literally work with what Mother Nature does. I'm not the chef. I'm the executive. Mother Nature is the chef the one that decide and so for me is literally I help in using the food as a practice to awareness for awakening the presence embodied so I use food as a practice but that's uh, what I do so we use uh, an element that's why today we book with the mono element because we don't need thousands of things we don't are, we are not dependent from a consuming world but we can create everything from a watermelon from a sweet from a salt from a vinegar like all the taste in a different phase from the same element that's uh, that's what i want to create for people freedom to be that's beautiful and i think <laughs> quite intrigued about your fermented wine can you talk us through what's going on there yeah, well, that fermented wine, uh, that one is a fermentation that I stop after a couple of weeks. And what happened that the sugar naturally uh, keep on evolving. So sugar is a sort of a fuel. We, uh, as a society, make few mistakes in our the industrialized food, use the sugar, use the salt and use the acidity as a dressing. They are actually chemical controller for a transformation. So we don't need to eat the sugar. The sugar goes to feed yeast and bacteria and we eat the result of it. But as a society, we make a huge mistake. We start to eat the sugar. No, 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 that's for the bacteria. The same with the salt. The salt is reg uh, regulated the transformation and the passage of the water. So it's a pH regulation, also that. We have the example in our ocean, that's the surrounding uh, big brine conserva conservation fermentation that we have around. And the acidity is the same. The acidity is, is one of the tra uh, transformation level from the carbs. So after the carbs pass to the alcoholic fermentation, then we have the, uh, the, la the lactic final fermentation that is actually transformation in vinegar. So what I teach is to don't think of everything separate, but see the story as a unique one and empower people because what a society does the industrialization does they take one produce they separate all and they sell it to ten times so I'm reteaching to people to empower themselves and to know that from one produce you do everything by yourself from a candy for your child from a pickle for for your salad from a wine for your table and a vinegar that you will use the, the day to come and a marmalade a jam for your breakfast so with one produce we already prepare an entire gourmet menu for the entire week. Incredible.
How, how do you see this process evolving? Like, what would you like to see come from the workshops that you're sharing, like, through the the last few weeks? Yeah, it's a lot is mo- a lot is moving, and what I can see is this sort of connection of different cells, is the collaboration. So, what is happening? The different farmer and different uh, mother or simple people that want to eat healthier are start to connect and receive information. It's all about the speed uh, in which the the information is reaching right now uh, all the different cells of this big body that we are as a community. So right now uh, this this frequency of communication is speeding up and what I love that only the frequency of truth can resist. What is not uh, what I can see that what is not completely truth need a lot of investment, need a lot of money to work. What is true is flowing by itself, quite almost out of an economical uh, restriction. And this is what I see because nature thrive without any plan, any uh, business plan, any marketing needs. And this is what I can see happening naturally. Interesting. I think, like, yeah, it's going to take, obviously, time for this message to spread through small events like this. But I feel like this is the kind of day where these things kind of move quickly. Yeah. And what I can say that the last, for example, uh, in the last uh, workshop that I'm offering at Terra Viva, uh, last time we were 12 and I had, I had six chefs. That means that we are literally changing the vibration here. And here in Ibiza, we are in a very lucky place to be and we are actually putting the seeds for this re-evolution uh, in the food in the consciousness of how to live in harmony with the planet because about all of this like this use uh, conscious use of everything without creating waste is actually as above so below uh, so below the kind of energy that we are putting the information that we are putting in the field that we don't exclude anymore anything that we include everything that we don't create waste but we use everything and we are not abusing again I produce a lot and I throw a lot no no I produce the right one my life is happy because the farmers don't have to break their back because we don't need so much I'm showing that with two watermelon of a size of a tiny size of a size of a football ball I'm giving ferment I'm giving vinegar and pickle to 12 15 people so how much we think we need so stop overproducing stop abusing the gentleness and the abundance of the mother start to treat also ourselves with the divinity grace of giving ourselves a break and start to enjoy because the abundance is literally flourishing in each each flower and in each step that we don't see so that's what i'm saying embodying be present and you will see abundance just flourishing in every crack of the world that's where we are at i see it and slowly slowly by telling this story more eyes are opening to this beautiful reality we are living in it I think that, you know, they talk about how there's enough clothes on planet Earth to feed the next six generations of people. But I wonder if we actually took stock of all the food that exists on the supermarket shelves and people's store cupboards, like how much, you know, food is already in um, in existence. It, it kind of intrigues me because I think that there is definitely with, you know, the birth of industrial agriculture, there has been this absolute tendency to overproduce with this feeling that, you know, we need more food because the world is growing in terms of the population but I feel like that's actually not necessarily the truth. That's that's a prison uh, if you observe when uh, actually uh, the corruption of the human species starts is when we start to accumulate the freedom of uh, the of the hunters, the freedom of uh, the uh, people that were foraging in that moment we were, imagine without a passport, passport free to move in peace and in harmony on this land without the need of accumulating because we were living in abundance and in each step there was what was needed and a surrendering to this beauty. As soon as we become afraid and we start to keep and we start to create accumulation because I have and then I have clothes in my in my uh, in my house and because I'm afraid I'm not saying that storing is uh, is is not is not okay because it's saving and preserving but we start to produce or overproduce just for an economical reason and by the way we have also to understand what is food and what is not. I always say if God produce it, eat it. If men uh, make it, leave it. So a lot of stuff that is on the shell and is pasteurized or is preserved, is, there is no life in it. So food and something that nourishes you needs to have a vibration in it. it. Has to have not only numbers. 
not only calorie, not only protein. That stuff, if it's not activate, is equal zero. We have, as human being, as human race, nourish all the level of our body, soul, and brain, because we are part of a big revolution that needs all of us to be awake and connect to the mycelium of the planet, if we want to strive as a humanity. So that's where we have to make a huge division between food and product, and industrialized product. Yes, that's stuff that you can f put in your body, but it's not doing you any good. In which sense? It's not uh, helping you to evolve. And the unique game in town right now for our species is evolution, or re-evolution, as we want to say. That feels like a great way to finish. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and um, very excited to try your watermelon workshop in a couple of hours from now. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.